Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Discover the power within. UnityOnlineRadio.org. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions, with your host, Rev. Paul John Roach. So, hello and welcome to World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from Fort Worth in Texas. And today, I welcome a medical doctor with a busy private practice in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, she's referred to as the, the health detective for successfully um, healing people. I, I can't read my own writing here. Uh, hold, hold on. They're successfully healing and treating patients <laughs> from across the country with difficult to diagnose health conditions. And today, though, we're going to talk about her memoir, which is entitled Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert, My Life Among the Navajo People. And it features her time as a teacher and sheep herder in in the Navajo Reservation, uh, as well as her time in the Peace Corps in Ecuador, and then on her uh, on a remote uh, health, a remote health clinic in Cuba, uh, New Mexico. So it's a, it's a pleasure to welcome Erica M. Elliott, M.D., to today's show. I'm glad you're with us, Erica. I'm glad to be here, Paul. First thing that strikes me is quite a varied life because uh, you've done many various things and had a, 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 a series of adventures, and uh, many of them are in this book, of course, and we'll talk about them in a minute. But, uh, you know, you talk a lot in your book about... Um, searching for a meaning and purpose in life, right? Which has taken you to, to many and varied places. And, you know, we like, we like to think uh, that it's the, the journey is as valid as the destination, right? And, um, and, and so we learn as much on, on our journey to understanding than we do in whatever it might be that we're trying to understand. Is, is that true for you? Yes, everything I learned on my 10-year journey to find uh, what I'm supposed to be doing in life was all very useful in coming together and helping me be a better doctor. Nothing was wasted. And when I did all these different adventures, people would say, why are you doing that? What what sense does that make? And how is this all connected? Well, in the end, I could see the full tapestry. I couldn't explain it at the time. I was guided by an inner compass that told me what to do. And even though it didn't, might not have made sense to friends and family, I, I just knew I had to do these things. And then after I found my purpose as a medical doctor, I looked back and I thought, wow, all these things that I did came together to make a beautifully woven tapestry 
making me a far better doctor than I ever would have been if I'd gone straight from college to medical students uh, uh, medical school. So everything works together for good. I think that's an uh, encouragement to all of our listeners. You know, no matter what's going on, uh, see it the, as something that's ultimately leading you to your to your highest good, uh, and uh, not to minimize pain and suffering. You know, when it exists, it's it's tough, but it, it's there not just to limit us, but to educate us as well. So we can come through to to a greater understanding. Uh, you have a nice uh, forward in the book by uh, John Borosenko, and she she talks about another uh, achievement you've had uh, in your life, and that's climbing mountains. So I understand you took a, a women's team to climb uh, Denali in, in Alaska and also went down to Aconcagua in, in Argentina. Those are two big mountains, so that's another achievement. Yeah, and I was also did a first ascent that was given my name. It was a peak that was part of uh, a, a big mountain and the peak had never been climbed and I climbed it. So the government of Ecuador gave it my name, Pico Erika Elliot. <laughs> that is awesome. That's cool. All right. Good and for Paul, you. Paul, I'd like to tell you why I did all these horrendous feats in the mountains. I, I was in the Peace Corps in Ecuador and <clears throat> on the weekend I I went to a climbing club that was part of Polytechnical Institute and that of um, Ecuador. It's like MIT of Ecuador. And I walked into their meeting, and there, it was an all-men's club, and I asked if they would take me on and teach me mountaineering. And to my great shock, they actually did. And so, so why I pursued this is because going back to Memoir 1, Medicine and Miracles, my life among the Navajo people, it's I had a close encounter with a mountain lion and I was sniffed while I was in my sleeping bag lying on a red rock in southern Utah. And I don't know why it didn't kill me, but it sniffed me and I, I was paralyzed with fear. And maybe that's why it didn't kill me. I didn't move. And I kept dreaming about this mountain lion thinking it was trying to tell me something and I didn't know what it was. And I read everything I could about mountain lions, trying to get some idea of why this happened to me. And finally, I told my teacher aide, my Navajo teacher aide, about the story. And she said that another teacher aide had a grandmother that lived deep in the canyon of Canyon de Chez who, who would tell me what it meant. So we went down there. This is when I was just learning Navajo. And... Uh, I could only speak a few sentences by then. <clears throat> and so the the granddaughter translated what the grandmother said. Uh, the granddaughter told the whole story, and then the grandmother looked over at me and smiled. She was all wizened up, full of wrinkles, smoking a corn cup pipe. Uh, pipe. And, and she said, and I wrote this in my diary when the granddaughter translated, she said, the mountain lion had come to me to give me uh, his strength, courage, and perseverance, and was my spirit guide that would guide me the rest of my life. And she said, I would face some big life challenges, and if it they didn't kill me, I would have powerful medicine to bring to the people. So I wrote that in my diary, 
I pretty much forgot about it except for one part of her prophecy, which obsessed me. It said, if I survive these big challenges. So I had no idea what these challenges were that faced me, but I had a feeling I had to make my mind and body strong. So that's, that's why I entered mountain climbing and did these horrendous feats that were really scary. I was trying to overcome fear and be brave and uh, increase endurance and um, strengthen my mind. And so, and it turns out her prophecy came through to the letter, to the letter. And all those skills that I developed really helped me survive. And it helped, they helped me in the end uh, be a better doctor. Fascinating, yeah. Not all of us are called to climb high mountains, folks. <laughs> so don't feel bad if you don't feel like you're going to, you know, hop, hop on a plane and, and, and climb Kilimanjaro tomorrow. But but uh, <laughs> it's, it's a metaphor, isn't it, for it's always pushing a, yourself a little oh, further. It's a metaphor that applies to anybody. It doesn't have exactly. to be sniffed by a mountain lion. They don't have to get a prophecy, but it, it, it's metaphorical content applies to anybody. About Absolutely. Getting, about getting inner guidance and following your inner wisdom and going where it takes you. That's all, whether it means um, just starting your own business or, you know, anything that's kind of challenging that you have to be brave to do and and so forth. So it doesn't mean literally one has to do <laughs> these kind of things. <clears throat> right. We, each of us are called to what what is ours to do. But I, like you said, you know, the key the key is to always push yourself a little further than you think you can go. I think, and yeah, um, that's right. you know, expand a little bit because you're either expanding or contracting in life. And yeah. it's once we expand, we we experience things that we could never. I've imagined when we live the contracted, safe, quote, safe life. So, and it, it takes some courage also to go to, um, you know, the Navajo Nation, especially, you know, in the in the era that you were there, right? And it, in recent times, it's become a little more modernized, I think. And, oh, yeah, um, it was very, you, know, this was you mentioned that in the book, yeah. But when you were there. Years ago that still. I went there. So it was still very traditional and many, Areas people didn't speak English, and in my classroom, the people, the kids in the fourth grade barely spoke English, and so I, I was really entering into a foreign world. And as they warmed up to me, as I started speaking Navajo, which my uh, teacher aide started teaching me, because um, like the white teacher, the other white teachers were had no relationship with the kids, and the kids were not learning and uh and so the te donna scott my teacher aide saw how much i was trying to connect with them and without any results and so she said try i'm going to teach you a few words of navajo so she taught me how to say good morning my children my name is miss elliot what's your name and where do you live and so I walked in the next morning and said, And everybody looked up at me for the first time, made eye contact, and they were in total shock that a white person was speaking their language, even though I'm sure in those early days I m mutilated their language because it's so hard. 
And and then one of the girls started laughing, and then the whole classroom burst out laughing. And that marked the turning point where everything changed and where my life became totally magical. And those kids saw that I cared about them, and they suddenly started learning English really fast. Why? Because they saw how much I wanted to know about their lives, and so they 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 wanted to tell me about it. So they they learned how to tell me how many sheep they had and what their grandmother was doing and how many brothers and sisters and the canyon and the coyotes and werewolves and stuff. And so by the end of the year, they became so fluent in English that three of them won a regional speech contest. And I kept the newspaper clipping because I thought, this is so astounding that with some love and caring of the kids, that it turns out they were very smart, contrary to what the the uh, older white school teachers were saying that they couldn't learn, they weren't very smart. They're saying very derogatory things about the students, which were so not true. It's They just didn't feel cared about, and they weren't motivated. And so anyway, uh, they started inviting me on the weekends to check them out of the boarding school, like one kid at a time, and they take me to their homes in deep into the canyon and where nobody spoke English. And so I started learning Navajo pretty fast. And um, I, I'm linguistically oriented because I moved around all my life with my family because my father's work. But, but I'd never faced a language like this. No wonder when it was used in World War II by the code talkers, it was the only code that was never broken, and it wasn't a code. It was just their language. And so anyway, they totally accepted me into their lives, into their ceremonies, and into their hearts. And they they treated me with such incredible kindness. And I got to witness things that I'm sure no white person has ever witnessed before, in their ceremonies, the miracles I saw, um, their traditions. It was so rich. And I felt sad that these people had been judged so badly. I mean, they, they, the judgments were so false. It was based on ignorance. So, and I realized how, I realized a lesson that I applied to all the rest of my life, how important it is like with my patients, to see the world through their eyes, try to step in their shoes, try to have empathy. And that's and when I do that, I can um, be able to help them much better and, um, and appreciate who they are and what they're going through. So they, they really feel heard and understood. And that, that's, that's the beginning step of healing in itself, is just to Absolutely. offer atmosphere. Well, you know, uh, you know, you you talk about uh, the fact, you know, the cultural norms of, of the Navajo are different from the cultural norms of of a typical white person, right? So, yeah. you know, and their language is very guttural and and uses unusual glottal stops and whatnot, and it, it sounds harsh. So, you know, when you first arrived, you thought they were they were being mean to each other, but that wasn't the case. It was just the, the language and 
and they're very shy, right? They didn't look up they're at shy, you. They're shy, and back in those days, they were totally misunderstood by white people. Like like you said, when uh, people heard them talk to each other, they thought they're mad at each other and they're mean. And No, that's just their language. And when they put their head down to look down, people thought, you know, what's wrong with these people? Well, it's their... Two things, they're showing respect by not looking you in the eye, and they only look you in the eye if they're really angry or, or your, very, your friends or your family. And, and uh, so showing respect and shyness. So the, the cultural misunderstanding is huge, at least it was back then. And I, I in the beginning, before my teacher aide helped me, I, I was in the first week making one cultural blunder after another, having no idea that I, I was doing things that were really not okay. And um, and so it, it just shows how easy it is to have cross-cultural misunderstandings. Um, I, I felt like I was so lucky to see their world and from their point of view and experience their land and their close attachment. Yeah, and also another um, area of misunderstanding in the culture of traditional Navajos, they do not want to stick out, whether it's being super wealthy, super smart, or the opposite, super poor, uh, super not smart. They, they want to fit in with their community. Their community is everything, whereas Americans, for example, they want to stick out as in some way, being the best cook, the best artist, the best this, the best that. And because our our sense of community is not as strong to bind us. Um, and so uh, that took me a while to realize, like I was, I, Donna Scott said, don't overpraise a student. Don't don't go all out and say, wow, that's really good. You really are great. If you want to do that, she said, do it in private. Don't do it around the whole class. And never tell off a student in public because that is, uh, is so shaming. And that reminded me of my father was in the they used to call it the Orient those days, in Asia doing a hardship tour. He was um, in the military. Um, he described the characteristics of the people he's with. And it, it, when I thought back about that, it, it sounded so much like the Navajo people of, of 50 years ago. They were very deferential, shy, respectful, and... Um, don't want to cause waves, don't want to make anyone feel ashamed, and so forth. So I had a lot to learn, and I, I was very excited about learning. And the um, more Navajo I learned, the more the world opened up to me. Yeah, there's a cohesion, isn't there, in, in a society like that, that we have sometimes lost, you know, in, in uh, typical white America, right? That, uh, as you say, you know, we all want to stand out in some way. Um, you see that on social media too. You know, people doing uh, more and more egregious things, you know, to get attention or whatever. Right. Uh, and it's a great detriment, I think, because there's something powerful about um, identifying with with a group. Um, I'm thinking the same thing right now, you know, in about Ukraine, because uh, yeah. you know we're going out live and. Um, they're right in the middle of a war there in Ukraine. 
and just to see their solidarity, you know, coming together to to, to fight and being patriotic in a, in a very deep and committed way, you know, not just your cheap patriotism we see sometimes yes. elsewhere, but uh, but that, that whole idea of, um, you know, and maybe it didn't happen until the war, you know, maybe the best of us comes out in in extremes. So that that but that but it's always there, I think. I, even in white America, I think uh, we all came together yeah. um, you know, after 9-11, for instance. So it's, 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 it's there. It's just not celebrated like it might be. Exactly. And um, I think because Native Americans, well, of that era is so tr- are so tribally oriented and um, that that's helped them survive some hideous conditions that they had to endure. <clears throat> Yeah, and you mentioned, uh, you know, the school you were in and, um, you know, the, the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is, you know, has unfortunately a, a little bit of a checkered history, doesn't it, in, in terms it of the way that Native Americans have of, been. Of uh, uh, sexual abuse of the children, beating them, and even to the point of death. And my boarding school, thank God, it was more progressive all that happened, you know, uh, before 1970. I, I, well, the most egregious stuff happened before then, and I was at the boarding school in Chinle in 1971, and the principal was a black man from the South who was very progressive, did not allow any hitting, and there was no punishment at all for the kids speaking their own language on the playground. So it, it was very different from um, what I had read in books about older um, times. It was hideous what I had read. Right, exactly. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate, uh, you know, mark on our, on our history that some of those things, those terrible things have happened. And, and I think there, you know, there's a, hopefully that's not going to happen again. Um, Though I'm not always sure about that, because we we still see um, control of, of you know Native Americans by by our our society to this day. Um, one thing you mentioned in the book is the the, the and you mentioned it already that was the, their connection to nature, right? They're deeply yeah. imbued in in the natural world um, through through their livelihood, of course, but but also through their sensitivity to to nature. And to the you know supernatural things too. So there's um, there's a whole mythos involved as well, right? In their yeah, storytelling oh. and and in their um, ceremonies. Oh, it's such a deep connection, Paul. It's like something I don't think white people have ever experienced, except maybe in uh, ancient times or something. But um, they, they, the animals are their brothers and sisters. That's how they view them. And when I was taught how to butcher sheep, I had to put corn pollen on the, which is sacred the way they do, and put it on the sheep's forehead and say a prayer in Navajo to the sheep and say, brother sheep, um, we ask that you give your life so our people can go on living. I mean, it was so sacred. Uh, the way it was done, and um, yeah, they're they're um, relatives. All the animals are their relations, and um, in their ceremonies, 
um, you know, it's giving thanks all the time to different components of Mother Nature. And their creation myth is very much bound uh, to the land. It's it's so moving. Um, I, I, I it's and it's so missing in our culture. It, it's just like nature is to be exploited in in white culture, and and there it was revered, great reverence, which was so deeply moved me to see that because I felt that way myself even as a girl. And I used to walk barefoot all the time just to touch the earth. I was so in love with Mother Earth. So I I felt like I was really a kindred spirit. I, and sometimes I, I would forget that I was white. I'd completely forget. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been to Canon de Shea one time uh, oh. several years ago now, but I was struck by the... The, 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 I don't know. There's a certain spiritual quality to yeah. to that area, isn't there? And yeah. you know, a lot of a lot of canyons kind of um, stair step down into the valley, whereas a lot of canyon to say they're vertical drops from the yeah. from the plateau straight down in, into the, the the valley bottom, and that makes it very dramatic. And uh, you know, I remember reading about Kit Carson coming through there and chopping down the orchards and. Oh, and wasting the land and everything, but it it seems like they, the the Navajo survived that the onslaught, right? And yeah, um, yeah. and still and, and and still and live there. For being the thanks to their the fact that they're so tribal that they survived that disaster. They all supported each other. <clears throat> yeah, but it is it is a very beautiful uh, beautiful area, and and it's now I think what a national park, isn't it? Or it's yeah, a preserved. Preserved area. You could roam around there, and I'm really glad they made a national park because there's so many treasures. Uh, You know, up in the caves, I came upon one, and uh, you know, as I was roaming around, I came across a a skeleton of a small woman who was under a pile of rocks, and uh, she had all her jewelry on, and on top of the bones and and yucca sandals and so forth. And I knew I'd done something wrong, by, by, so I put the rocks back and I told my classroom on the following Monday what I'd seen, and they were so upset with me. They said that um, that was really bad what I had done and that I needed a ceremony to cleanse myself from the ghosts of the dead. And so, you know, I, I had a little cleansing, but, um, yeah, they're very respectful. They don't want that such any of that stuff touched. And so I, I think it, it, I, I'm so glad um, that the Park Service controls who goes down there and what happens. And you have to have a Navajo guide go with you unless you're on the main trail that goes to the White House ruins. I think that's a really good thing. Right. Very good. Folks, I'm with uh, Erica M. Elliott. We're talking about the book Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert. We'll come back after the break to talk about the more weird and wonderful things that happened to Erica during her time there. Join us in a couple of minutes after these messages from Unity. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. 
Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. So welcome back, folks, to today's show on World Spirituality. I'm, I'm with Erica M. Elliott, and she's written a wonderful memoir called Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert, My Life Among the Navajo People. And we'll talk more about that in a, in a, very shortly. But I just want to give you an update about where my book is. Uh, you know, my book came out a couple of weeks ago, Unity and World Religions. It's available from unity.org. Just go to unity.org and you can purchase a book there. The Kindle edition is on Amazon, but the uh, the paperback edition sold out, unfortunately. Um, and so it's waiting for another shipment from Unity to start up that Amazon. So if you if you go to Amazon and see it's not there, it's, it's just a temporary thing until more more books come in. But you can still get it from unity.org. Uh, but I know many people like to buy from Amazon these days and Hoping in the next day or so it'll be it'll be back up. Uh, it's selling well, so uh, I hope you can get a copy and uh, delve into it. There's a lot of uh, fascinating information, and uh, it's it's user friendly, it's conversational in style, unity and world religions. But uh, today I'm talking with Erica, and you experienced you talked about that amazing. Um, encounter with the mountain lion but you've had other remarkable things not just on the physical but on the spiritual or psychic level too i know you you've done a a, a couple at least um peyote ceremonies you know with the native american church and those are pretty dramatic aren't they all night affairs and uh, share share some of the amazing things that happened to you in those okay so what happened is um, I had a couple families, uh, quote, adopt me, not literally, but they wanted me to feel like I was part of their family and call them by relational terms like my mother, my brother, my son. That's a sign of an affection among Navajo people is when you call them kinship terms. It means they like you. And, um, <clears throat> and so... Um, my Navajo mother said, uh, once she knew she could trust me, she said that she belonged to the Native American church, which is the peyote church. They don't use the word peyote. They call it plant medicine, and um, and they don't use it for recreation. In fact, the roadman, who, that's a word for the medicine man who runs peyote ceremonies, the roadmen condemn Use of peyote for recreation. They say it's for prayer and and for spiritual purposes for healing. And so she she invited me to attend one of these ceremonies on a weekend. I I, I was a bit scared because I knew they were hallucinogenic and I didn't know what would happen if I would act crazy or something in there. I was, I was a bit scared. And she said, don't worry, you know, um, it, it's going to be very good, and um, but you can't wear your white man's clothes. And so I, I was dressed regally in a velvet uh, shirt and a satin skirt, and then I had a concha belt around me and tons of 
turquoise jewelry. I looked like I was ready to go to a Navajo prom or something. And um, they did up my hair a certain way with the yarn and everything. <clears throat> and so I went in there and um, and sat on the floor on a blanket with my Navajo grandmother right next to me. The road man was to my left. He faces the doorway, which is pointing east. Everything is very ritualistic. And he has a little altar in front of him with the peyote button and the peyote tea and the peyote powder. And they're passed around all night. And uh, my Navajo mother, the, that word is shimma. Shim means my, ma means mother, shimma. Shimma told me um, that don't worry if I vomited, because she said when people vomit, it's the evil coming out of them. And so I felt like I had to vomit, but I didn't want people to know that I was evil. And so I tried to keep the vomit from coming out. But it tasted horrible. But uh, anyway, I could feel it start to work. And then I, I started... Um, confusing what was real and what wasn't real. It kind of got all mixed up for me. And uh, part of the ceremony is a hand-rolled cigarette made from herbs from that were gathered on the San Francisco peaks in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is now unfortunately a ski area. Um, it was used to pray. You, breathe, you inhale, exhale the smoke, and then you say a prayer. And so everybody does that. So it was passed around, and my Shema did it, and then she passed it to me, and she said in English, just pass it on. And because at this point, I, I didn't speak much Navajo. I had only been there a month or so, or six weeks or something, so I can only say a few sentences. And so something really weird happened. I did not pass it on. I inhaled the smoke and I exhaled and then I started praying in Navajo in Navajo and I thought wow this this peyote is this plant medicine is really strong I I, I it it feels so real that I'm praying in Navajo but that's impossible I don't speak Navajo how, how is that possible and uh, so I had this dialogue as I was praying in Navajo, a prayer I'd never heard in my life before, and I didn't speak Navajo. And so I just thought it was one big hallucination. And so then I passed it on. And then they did the water drum, which is a metal drum filled with water with a hide stretched on top. It, ma it makes an ethereal sound, very mystical, and it's passed around, and as you're drumming it, you, you sing a prayer song. And so, again, the same thing happened. After Shema uh, pounded on the drum, she passed it to me, and she said, pass it on. And I didn't pass it on, and I drummed, and I started singing, Hey, nay, young, yo, a song I'd never heard of in Navajo, a prayer song. And I thought, wow. This plant medicine is so strong. It, it feels so real what I'm doing, but it can't possibly be real. So anyway, the ceremony went all night. It was to heal a baby. The baby was across the hogan from me, and baby had started out very sick, and a copper-colored skin, 
full of mucus, glazed over eyes, fussy. And I watched during the whole ceremony the baby get better till the baby was gurgling and looking at the mother right in the eyes. And I didn't get that. Oh, sh- Could you try oh, again? Oh, sh- okay. So sorry for that. Um, so anyway. Um, you were saying. Oh, I, I'm going to turn off my computer. Sorry. Um, beg your it's pardon. all good. I beg, beg your pardon. Um, log out. Shut down. Okay. Um, so, uh, so we filed out when the um, ceremony was over, and we touched our forehead to the ground, and we uh, fanned ourselves with our eagle feather fans, and went into the neighboring cinder block house. Sat on the floor on, on a sheet, and there were like about 25 people there sitting around, and. We were starting to eat our breakfast with mutton stew, fry bread, and canned peaches. And the road man started looking at me. By now, the the plant medicine had long worn off. Looking at me and started talking Navajo nonstop. And I, I, I couldn't understand why he was doing that because I didn't speak Navajo and he kept doing it, and finally I sheepishly said, uh, uh, excuse me, I, you know, I, I, I don't really understand what you're saying. I don't speak Navajo. And everybody burst out laughing. They thought that was hilarious, and, and I was so confused. Why is everybody laughing? And the roadman said, you sure talked up a storm last night. And so oh, yeah. I thought, oh, my God. So that was the beginning of many different otherworldly miraculous experiences. And like another experience was a a miraculous healing, and this time for me. I don't know if you want to hear that one, but I had a whole series of miracles happen. And when I gave talks about this, people in the audience would say, how how do you explain that? And I'd say, you know, all I know is it really happened, like the miraculous healing of a tumor, but I can't explain it. And, uh, you know, there are people in the audience who try to explain it for me, like a physicist would say, well, it's quantum physics, everything out there in the universe is there, but our logical minds don't let us have access to it, and when you were under the influence, you had access to infinity. That's one explanation. Somebody else said I was a Navajo in my former life, in fact, some Navajo said that about me, actually. And um, so the truth is, I, I don't know how it happened. I, I, I really don't, but it happened. And I, I, I documented everything in my diary because it was so far from normal reality that white people experience. I thought, I have to write this down. If I don't, then someday... I'll think I, I imagine the whole thing because it's so outrageous, uh, so foreign to our world. And um, so, yeah, it, it was all so magical and so so much mystery during my time there. It was so profound. Right, right very good. Well, it reminds me of uh, Shakespeare, you know, when Hamlet says to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth that dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. And, you know, I think that's what we're talking about here, you know, from a 
a rationalistic five you know five senses three dimensional worldview. We we can't experience these things. But when we expand ourselves, like we talked about earlier, to an, to a larger awareness of what's going on, you know, then things become possible. So um, you know, there, there's no limit to what uh, can happen when we when we open our consciousness to to things and. Um, it seems that you know the Navajo in some ways is still in touch with that. It, it, I, when I went to India, I experienced similar things, you know, because I think certain Indian people are still very much in touch with the the spirit. Uh, the, the veil between the the earth and heaven is is narrower, you know, is is more flimsy than than yeah. it is in in the West, in the rational West. And um, I think more and more people are understanding this in recent years, though. I like. What your quantum physicist said, because I kind of a, agree with that. You know, we 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 are infinite, right? But we we experience ourselves as finite. Finite. Um, one thing I want I want you to talk about is the 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 werewolves and the skinwalkers and all that. And you had an experience of that too, where you saw a creature oh, moving yeah. through the canyon at night, and that's kind of weird. Yeah, it's very very weird, and uh, because. The kids in my class, after I told them about finding the skeleton when they were so upset with me, they we we decided to take advantage that I did this bad thing and just talk about all their beliefs about werewolves and uh, and skinwalkers and ghosts and all that stuff and ghost sickness and stuff. So I I got quite an education while they were getting quite an English lesson, and um, so it, it, we both benefited and. Um, I asked the class, I said, well, you know, uh, this sounds really scary. I said, uh, I live in the government housing, you know, it's a little dumpy little apartment. And I said, am I in danger of one of those werewolves coming to get me? And a little boy said something so profound. He said, no, Miss Ellett. They they couldn't say Elliot. They call me Elliot. No, Elliot. Uh, they they won't they won't get you because um, you don't believe in it. <laughs> so I thought, wow. I mean, that's profound what he said. It's. Uh, but anyway, I did see something that sure looked like a werewolf because. Um, there were some Mormon students from Utah who were visiting. They were uh, student teachers. And they had asked me if I would take them down into the canyon. And I, I said I would, and then I didn't hear from them again. And then they knocked on my door. They said, can we go tonight? This is our last day here. I said, go in the canyon at the night? And, and they said, yeah, because we're leaving tomorrow. And they said, well, it's a full moon, so you can see what you're doing. I said, oh, well, you know, my students said never walk in the canyon at night. And uh, they said, why? I, I said, well, you know, they said there's, you know, some strange things happening. And um, so they begged me and begged me. So I said, okay, I, I, we would do it. So I parked my car at the trailhead where there's a trail that goes down into the canyon. <clears throat> And again, back then, you could go wherever you wanted without a guide. And we started walking down, and all the way across the canyon, there was a cave. And I saw a fire burning up there. And I said, look, 
there, there's a fire up in the cave. And they, they weren't impressed. They, they said, oh, it's probably some hiker. I said, no, it can't possibly be a hiker because you're not allowed to camp in here. And um, and they said, well, maybe they just broke the rules. I said, no, there's no way you can get up there. There's no way you – there's no ladder or anything up there. They They weren't impressed. And then – as we kept walking, we saw sh- sh- shadows on the back wall of the cave, and they looked like they were dancing or something. They were moving shadows of people. I said, "Look, look at that!" And and they said, "Oh, they're they're just somebody dancing in there. They're just yeah, campers." Said, no, it's not. Something very weird is happening. So so they they weren't that impressed, and so then. There was um, a high-pitched whistle sound like from, made from a whistle, a whistle made from an, a leg of an eagle. And I had heard that in ceremonies. And then everything went dark. Nothing happened. And um, we kept walking down. Then all of a sudden, we heard this huge ruckus in the Hogan that was down at the bottom. And... The sheep went crazy, like stampeding and making noise. Something horrendous was happening. And so now they started getting afraid, and they started being quiet and stopped talking and paying attention. And and we we didn't move. We kept our eyes on the bottom of the canyon. And after a few minutes, we saw this creature that looked bigger than a man and bigger than a big dog and smaller than a horse loping along and uh, with a skin on its back. And I said, oh, my God, that's a skinwalker. And now they were scared, and we ran back as fast as we could to the car. And I dropped them off at their little dormitory where they were staying. And I had so much adrenaline going in my veins that there's no way I could go home and go to bed. And so I drove over to the public school housing, and I knew one of the teachers at the public school with some friends, and his light was still on. He was grading papers, even though it was like midnight or something, or 11 o'clock. And I knocked on his trailer door, and he said, come on in. I told him the story, and he he. He thought I had a good imagination and that, you know, uh, he, he didn't really believe me. And that hurt my feelings so much. It, 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 I, I was very sensitive to being disbelieved because I had some unusual things to tell people and I learned just to not tell them anymore because it was beyond what they could comprehend. And so he didn't believe me. So I, I, I wanted to show him and... My desire to be believed overcame my desire, my fear level. And so we got in the car and I drove back and we walked down the path and um, and there was nothing going on in the cave. It was dark. And so the, the guy said, you know, I don't know what the big deal is. There's nothing going on here. So we walked all the way to the bottom and we crossed the the bottom, which was full of dried corn, so it kind of made a rustling sound. And then we got to the wall where the cave was up high, and there was a talus slope that went part way up. So he started 
walking up the slope, and I was too scared. I stood at the bottom just looking up. And then halfway, he heard a noise in the cave, and he almost fell off the talus slope. He said, did you hear that? I said, yeah. He said, oh, it's probably a mountain lion. I said, there are no mountain lions in Canyon de Chez. He said, somebody's up there. He said, I don't believe it. And he kept walking. And then this voice boomed out, get the fuck out of here, white boy. And he, he, almost, <laughs> he almost fell off the talus slope. We ran so fast out of there. It was, um, anyway, it gave me a little bit of a taste of, of that part of their culture, which is really strange to me. And um, that, that part I never really got very well. But I think it's, they have, I, 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 well, I asked my, the children in my class, how, how do you become a werewolf? And they say you do the worst thing that you could possibly do. And I said, what's that? And he said, kill a relative. Uh, wow. So are you automatically a werewolf if you kill a relative? And he said, well, you could turn into, you know, do the opposite and just go around doing good things. But um, often you turn into a bad person. And then they whis- one of the students whispered to me that the janitor was a werewolf. <laughs> was a werewolf. <laughs> and so I, I never looked at him the same way ever again. <laughs> and... Um, Anyway, I think it's a cultural thing to keep people in line, you know, to keep people from sticking out too much either way that they could get a werewolf after them or terrorize them or something. Right, right. I'm sure that's part of it. But I think also there's there's a long tradition, isn't there, in, in many cultures of uh, shape-shifting and, and the ability to, you know, enter into the uh, uh, consciousness of various animals, you know, um, and have a power animal or whatever. And that, that, again, that could be metaphorical. It could be perhaps literal, you know, it, it, we don't know. But, um, yeah, uh, it's it's a fascinating subject. And, um, you know, I, 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 I tend to believe it, in, especially in, in metaphor, you know, that we could enter into the, as you did, you know, you had that mountain lion consciousness, the courage and the resilience, you know, to get you through difficult times. And, and we we could choose an animal or an entity ourselves. I think that we feel we feel close to, right? That uh, that can help us um, and and sort of channel those those energies that can be quite valuable to us. I think in in our lives. So yeah, there's there's all kinds of things going on. We're almost at the end of the show. Let me tell people about next week, and then um, I'm going to ask you, Erica, to give us all some invite uh, advice and encouragement. Um, what you've learned in, in your years uh, that would be helpful to us this week. So uh, next week, uh, researcher and healer Sandy Edwards joins me, and uh, she's coming all the way from, from England. She's going to talk about uh, spiritual healing in hospitals and clinics, uh, scientific evidence that energy medicine promotes speedy recovery and positive outcomes. So that sounds like a nice uh, tie-in to some of the things we've talked about today. So join me then, but it's just in the last couple of minutes, advice for us. What would you give us some upliftment with? Okay, so what served me all my life since being with the Navajo people, which is, it's a profound lesson, 
that um, when, when you're faced with somebody that's different from you, it's really important to um, try to get in their shoes and see life through their eyes and to have empathy and compassion. That goes a long ways. And um, to making yourself happier and, um, and, and feeling less like you're in a hostile world. And I do that with my patients, and it really helps enormously. It helps me help them when I can try to um, see through their eyes and see what life is like. <clears throat> Excellent advice because, um, you know, many of our problems that we have, that we face personally and um, societally, right, and in terms of nations, is the lack of empathy, <laughs> a, la a lack of seeing it from the other person's perspective and wanting to impose our, our will on others. And, um, you know, that's the way that leads to war, to strife, to uh, all kinds of difficulty, I think. But... Uh, when, when we can walk in somebody else's shoes and understand their perspective, then, you know, again, we're expanding, aren't we? We, we begin to have a, a compassionate stance for, for people and for ourselves, actually. We're not so harsh on ourselves as well. So, yeah, very, very good advice, I think, for uh, the, where we are in our present life. So you, you have more books coming out. Tell us real quickly about those. Okay, the next one is... Um called From Mountains to Medicine, My Search for Purpose. And that's about my time in the Peace Corps and the mountaineering and how one thing led to another and, and led me into medicine. The third, and I finished the manuscript. Inner Tradition said they would publish it if this first memoir does well. <laughs> so please write a review on Amazon. <laughs> but there anyway, but anyway, so, and, and then they probably uh, publish all of them. And then the third one is about my time in medicine and um, how I eventually left mainstream medicine because it was so unrewarding. And it was not what I spent 10 years of my life searching for, just giving out pills, doing lots of tests, seeing people with serious problems for 15 minutes. It just seemed horrible. I, I just didn't want to have anything. Whoops, we're at the end of the show. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I hear the music coming. Hey. These all sound fascinating, folks. Get hold of the book. It's wonderful. And thanks for listening. And thank, thank you, Erica, for being on the show today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Great. All right. Bye now. Take Bye care, now. folks. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.